0: Our Father, as we open the word now together this morning to study, we pray for your spirit to enliven our hearts and our minds to hear and to focus. May he apply the truth of your word to us in just exactly the place where we need to hear it today. And we ask for Jesus' sake, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this is, um, this is kind of an interesting time for, for Carol and I. We're, um, we're here in these last weeks, and for me, in terms of the pulpit, having finished the book of Ephesians last Sunday, yet having three more times in the pulpit with you, that led me to some consideration as to you know, what, what I want to bring to you in the final few weeks that I have here. And having had the opportunity over these last years to preach and teach uh, more than a thousand times among you, there were many, many possibilities of things to choose from so just thinking about that reality and the transitions that are going on here and just saying how excited Carol and I are for all of that, but also recognizing, as Paul said there in Ephesians 6, the schemes of the devil and how he would like nothing more than to really get in here and disrupt this fellowship and the vulnerability that always happens when there are major transitions. Just thinking through that, I, I've come to three... Sermons that I have previously preached in this pulpit that I want to re-preach for you, the first of which is this morning. So three messages, and uh, they're a bit of a trip down memory lane. They go back a number of years, so it'll predate some of you for sure. So for you, it'll be the first time. For others of you, if you remember it, just pretend that you don't. And, uh, but in any case, just pray that the Spirit of God applies it uh, for you. So, let me ask you a question as we just kind of get going here together this morning. Have you ever wondered what your voice sounds like? Have you ever wondered what your voice sounds like? You know, we see ourselves in a picture, and for most of us, we're not usually very happy with the, the way it comes out. Do I really look like that? Yeah, actually, <laughs> afraid you do. Uh, and we love you anyway, and isn't that wonderful? Um, But your voice is also that way, when we we speak, we hear ourselves, but we hear ourselves mitigated through our own inner ear and and so forth. So we think we sound one way and then you hear yourself in a recording and you say, really? So I'm ugly and sound like Donald Duck, (laughs) yep. (laughs) But people still love me anyway, so that's good. a question I really want to get after this morning is, is how do other people hear me, not in terms of my audio quality, but in terms of my character quality? How do they hear me in terms of my speech? In Proverbs chapter, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, we will get to Proverbs, but in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. That it may give grace to those who hear. So, does my speech give grace? That's really the kind of the question we're after. Not, not what do I sound like, but but does my speech confer grace on people? About twelve years ago, Jerry Bridges wrote a, a book entitled Respectable Sins. Respectable Sins. And the premise of his book is that, and I'm quoting, him, I'm quoting him here, his premise is that we conservative evangelicals have become so preoccupied with the major sins of society that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle sins. In other words, we're paying so much attention to everybody else's sin that we have this whole package of our own that we just sort of gloss over and it becomes somewhat respectable. Things like gossip or murmurings or divisions and dissensions or backbiting or flattery or lying or exaggerations, name-calling And coarse jesting, those are a few of the, quote, more respectable sins. Open up your Bibles, if you're not there already, to the third chapter of James. To James chapter 3. In our time together this morning, we will be looking at verses 1 through 12 of James chapter 3 and verses 1 through 12. James is a wonderful book, to be sure. It's sort of the New Testament counterpart to the book of Proverbs. It is about practical Christianity. How do do we live out what God has put in in the person of his spirit? And James here in chapter 3 is concerned with regard to practical Christianity to the control of the tongue. This is one of those aspects of practical Christianity that is really exceedingly important and probably doesn't get talked about often enough. A living faith produces internal results. And one of the places where the internal transformation can be observed is in the control of the tongue and the control of the tongue. When, when we are transformed and, and moved from the kingdom of darkness, uh, the, our union with Adam, to our union with Christ, the kingdom of light, there is a transformation, a real transformation that occurs, and, and that transformation is to have its outworking through our tongues. Through our tongues. Jesus said that a man's words are the revelation of his character, In Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 to 37, out of the heart the mouth speaks, right? And James agrees. James agrees. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23 that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And a good way of measuring our progress in self-control is how do we use our tongue? How do we use our tongue? Now, the human tongue is a fascinating organ. It weighs only on average two and a half ounces. And yet, it is the source of a lifetime of trouble. Two and a half ounces of trouble. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 1 of James chapter 3. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. In these 12 verses here, I think James provides for us a threefold self-diagnostic. A threefold self-diagnostic regarding the tongue. And I want to look at this together so that we might flee to Christ. There's more than enough here to to bring condemnation on us all. But as we look at this diagnostic, diagnostic, it's, it's ultimately designed to drive us to Christ for the daily grace we need to grow in this vital aspect of practical Christianity. So, First step of this self-diagnostic in verses 1 through 5 is this. We must remember that the tongue is important. Okay? Verses 1 through 5, we must remember that the tongue is important. Paul says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. It's interesting that James begins here the topic of the tongue, and he he does it by singling out those in the congregation, and he includes himself here, right? Look at this. He says, um, we shall incur the stricter judgment. He singles out those whose primary ministry among the people of God comes through their mouth. They're the first up. The Proverbs say in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 19, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Those whose ministry is primarily a spoken ministry, a ministry that comes through their mouth, know how easy it is to sin with our mouths. Now, the danger is in a congregation that that highly values the Word of God, because a congregation like this one that highly values the Word of God also then highly value those who teach it. And that's a good thing. But there's a danger sort of associated with that. And the danger is this, that, that a congregation that properly exalts the teaching ministry can unwittingly foster unbiblical ambitions among the members. Let me say it again. A, a congregation that properly exalts the teaching ministry, and, and Paul informs the church at Corinth, right, as they're being tossed back and forth by the issue of the gifts and how they're used and so forth, and, and Paul says, "'Earnestly desire the greater gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers.'" above the splashy gifts like miracles and tongues and all that sort of thing. So it's the proper thing to to value the the teaching ministry, but in doing so, the danger lies in unwittingly fostering the the unbiblical ambitions that can come up among those in the membership, those that are part of the body. In other words, the position of the teacher can become a sought-after office that draws both men and women who are neither called nor qualified to speak for God. And I think that's what James is dealing with here. James says, we shall incur the stricter judgment. When will this judgment come? I think the Bible would teach us that the judgment would come at the Bema Seat. That when the rapture happens and, and the church is caught up to be with Christ, and there's a, the, the series of, of evaluative, evaluative judgments at the Bama seat, that Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. There at the Bama seat, Christ himself will, will judge, will evaluate the, the quality and the consistency of the teachers and their teaching. In other words, we who teach will be evaluated based on whether our words are true. Do we teach truth or opinion? Are they edifying to the believers? And do our lives back up our teaching? Do our lives back up that which we have taught? Let not many of you become teachers James says, because there is a strict judgment involved in this. This warning applies, obviously, to the elders and and people like that, but I think it, it derivatively certainly applies to each and every one. We all teach at one level or another whenever we open our mouths and dispense wisdom or opinions. And so, There is that evaluative aspect when we open our mouths. When you give advice to someone else, whether they ask for it or not, you have placed yourself in the role of a teacher, and there is going to be an evaluation of all of that. Judgment is according to the principle. This is the principle. The greater the influence, the greater the responsibility. The greater the influence, the greater the responsibility. Those who speak for God are strictly accountable for what they say. Strictly accountable for what we say. Beloved, if it's true that as Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment, then how much more for those of us who are regularly engaged in the teaching ministry? It's a serious thing. It's a very, very serious thing to stand among the people of God to open the word of God and to begin to teach. Should it scare us off? Is the purpose of this message to drive every single one out of the congregation who has any thought about teaching? No, not at all. But it is to bring a sense of sobriety to the task. Verse 2, James goes on, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. Really candid com- uh, admission, isn't it? We've got an apostle here who's saying that, you know, that we all stumble in a multitude of ways. The idea of stumbling is, is you know, st- kind of catching your foot on a certain obstacle and, and, it, and you trip over it. And he's saying that that happens to all of us, and it, and it happens to us all the time in all kinds of ways. Now, metaphorically here, he's he's speaking this stumbling is not the accidental kind of stumbling. It's it's a failure of duty. It's It's a mistake that's blameworthy. It's sin. For we all sin in many ways, is the idea. If anyone does not stumble in what he says... When one does not sin in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to, bo- uh, to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, that we all sin. We can easily acknowledge that reality, right? We all sin. The person who can, invo- can avoid sinning with their mouth is one who has made considerable progress in the Christian faith. The one whose mouth doesn't regularly cause them to stumble, doesn't regularly trip them up, has made considerable progress. That's kind of the idea that James is after here. That person is, translated here, perfect, could be mature. I think that's probably a better translation of the Greek. That one is mature. In other words, if you're able to control your tongue, then you're able to control all the other areas of your life where sin might manifest itself. A guy who can't control his tongue can't control himself. And it will leak out all over the place. A lady who can't control her tongue can't control herself. And her sin will leak out all over the place. That's the idea. In other words, the ability to control two and a half ounces of muscle and blood vessels translates in the ability to control your whole body. James applies and illustrates this statement in two ways. Verse 3 and 4, the bit and the rudder. Right? The bit and the rudder. Verse 3, now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. That's his illustration of this. I mean, think about this for a moment. How do you control an animal that weighs 1,000 pounds, is capable of running 25 miles an hour for an extended period of time with a 200-pound man on his back? How do you control an animal like that? By controlling its mouth. By controlling its mouth. It, It seems rather obvious to us, doesn't it? I mean, you put the bit in the horse's mouth, not under their tail. And when we control their mouth, we control the entire animal. We we make it conform to our wishes. That's what James says. It's just an observation of life. Verse 4, he he brings up the the nautical illustration of the rudder. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Now, we might have this idea in mind that in the ancient world, the ships were all small. And if that were our thought process, we would be wrong. For the ships in the ancient world were actually quite large. According to Acts chapter 27, verses 37 and 38 the ship carrying Paul to Rome had 276 people aboard it, plus a full cargo of excuse me, of wheat. It was a very large ship. And yet, despite the strong winds, despite the size of the vessel and so forth, it's steered by the pilot, James observed, by a small oar-like projection that's fastened to the stern of the ship. I mean, it's really pretty amazing, isn't it? Relative to the size of the ship, the rudder is just a, a small little thing that hangs down in the water and you move it and, and the ship goes wherever you want it to go. Verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. James is applying the, these images of the of the ability to move the horse and the ability to steer the ship back to the tongue. And, and the idea is that which seems small, that which seems insignificant, has great control over a person's life. In a certain sense, your, your tongue predicts your destiny. It's a serious matter. Now here, James is, is personifying the tongue, He's, he's conscious here of the great, or, 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 or he, by personifying the tongue, the tongue becomes conscious of its own great power, and, and, it, and it arrogantly boasts of its ability to, to, you know, do whatever it wants to do, right? Verse 5, the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. Listen, any politician worth their salt knows that a, that a well-delivered speech can be mesmerizing and can move great crowds of people. It can call them to action. A speech that is, that is for good can, can move and motivate people to good, and a speech that is for evil can move and motivate people for evil. If you want an illustration of that, you can go to World War II. And you look at the speeches of Adolf Hitler and and Winston Churchill. Adolf Hitler, by the way, was a a really uh, quite accomplished um, orator. It was just designed for evil. James continues Behold, behold, or see how great a forest is set aflame. By such a small fire. The the power that's that's here in our tongue and, and is revealed in this final metaphor, the, the power of the flame. The power of the flame. And again, James is just drawing on on that which is very common to us and, and, and people of his day that they would understand that. That something that's small, something insignificant, you know, it only takes a spark kind of idea to get a fire going, right? I guess that's the Christian version of it. And a small flame can burn a forest down. We live here in Southern California. We get that illustrated forest like every year. Thousands of acres, hundreds of thousands of acres are consumed by a, by a small fire, casually or carelessly started so we understand the, the metaphors that he continues to, to pour out here for us to understand how important the tongue is. Okay? Your tongue is important. Secondly, we must realize that the tongue is insubordinate. So it's not only important, we must realize it is insubordinate. Verses 6 through 8. There's a transition that goes on here. James is transitioning from the importance of the tongue to the outcome of the tongue on a person's life. And he he introduces a, a series here of shocking statements about how dangerous and defiant our tongues really are. James says here that our tongues are not neutral, or they are the very source of evil, absolutely untamable. This is a penetrating assessment of human speech. And it should drive us to the cross of Christ where we find the forgiveness and and relief we need. Reading through this, thinking about all of this should drive us to Christ. Verse six, the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and is set on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. James here, he speaks of the tongue as the focal point of all iniquity. Now, Jesus correctly locates the source of iniquity where? It's in the heart. And James would agree to that. But James is just focusing on the, that that which was in the heart is what's vocalized out of the mouth. It is the, it is the mouth, it is the tongue that gives, that gives voice to the evil that lies within. The Proverbs are replete with warnings about the destructive power of the tongue. Proverbs chapter 16 Verses 27 and 28, a a worthless man digs up evil while his words are as a scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 25, verse 23, the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. Proverbs 26, 18 to 21. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, Was I not joking? For lack of wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Beloved, there is no end to the misery and heartbreak that an uncontrolled tongue can bring both to its owner and to those around him. No end to the misery. One of the ways that the tongue brings destruction is through criticism. One of the ways that the tongue brings destruction is through criticism. Remember poor Moses? Hmm? Stuck in the desert for 40 years with 2 million critical people. He wanted to die. They didn't like the food. They didn't like the scenery. They didn't like the destination. And they didn't like the tour director. In fact, they go so far as to say they were better off in slavery in Egypt, right? Take me back to slavery. It's a wonder. Honestly, it is a wonder that Moses survived. When we criticize, when we criticize, we assume the position of a spectator rather than a participant. let say it again. When we criticize, we assume the position of a spectator rather than a participant. Rather than coming alongside and, and helping, instead we sit back and we vocalize our disapproval. Rather than becoming part of the solution, we're part of the problem. One writer said this. I think he's right on here. He says, when we're young, we whine. When we're old, we criticize. When we're young, we whine. When we're old, we criticize. Which leads me, parents, particularly parents of young children, you've got to deal with the whining. They will not grow out of it. They will not grow out of it. Do not let your children develop a habit and a pattern of whining, for they will grow up to be critical adults. Nothing's ever good enough. The story is told of John Wesley and how he was deeply vexed by those who enjoyed criticizing Christ's work. Once while he preached, a lady with a critical spirit glared at his new necktie. After the service, she told him, the strings on your tie are too long. It is vain and an offense to me. I don't like your suit, basically. Mr. Wesley called for scissors and asked her to trim his tie to her liking. She did so. Then Mr. Wesley said, let me have those scissors. I hope you too will not mind a bit of correction, for your tongue is an offense to me. It is too long. If you will stick it out, I will trim some off. Now, I'm not sure he really said that, okay? It may be one of those apocryphal sayings, to be sure, okay? Preachers use this all the time, by the way, as sermon illustrations, but nobody quotes the source. I looked. Anyway, even if it's not true, it's still good. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Verse 6 The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The Greek word is Gehenna. It was the place outside of Jerusalem, southwest of the city, where they burned the trash incinerated the refuse from the city. It was filthy, stinking, disease-infested place with continual fires belching out black smoke. Perfect illustration of the place of eternal torment. James says that the source of the destructive fire of an uncontrolled tongue is hell itself. Beloved, an uncontrolled tongue, it's like a, a direct pipeline to hell. That's James's point, point. And it's filthy fire burns both our lives as well as everyone around us. I mean, how many churches have suffered from people whose speech is more fitted for hell than it is for heaven, huh? You just think about that. I do think about that. And have been praying for a long time for this body. That during this important transition period, that we don't sin with our mouths. That we don't import the smell of hell into this fellowship. By our own critical spirit. Verse 7, for for every species of birds, excuse me, of beasts and birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Again, James, he he just brings in another illustration here, right? He's using it to speak of the insubordination of the tongue. He just reminds us. Listen, we've tamed everything. There's, there's a pet everything. I don't get it, but there is. This is my pet boa constrictor. I wear it like a necktie, you know. What are you, crazy? Sorry, anybody out here wears a snake around their neck? Don't do that. But he says we've, we've tamed it all, but we can't tame our tongue. Tamed everything. We can't tame the tongue. One writer said this because of the fall, man has lost dominion over himself. I thought that was pretty good. In the fall, we, we've lost, the, you know, our dominion over the earth has been damaged, to be sure, right? It's thorns and thistles. But we've also lost dominion over ourselves. We can't control our, our own tongue, it's restless, can't be trusted. To stay in its proper place, it's, it's notorious for breaking out. Remember, remember, the tongue is important. Secondly, we have to rec- or realize rather that the tongue is insubordinate third. We must recognize that the tongue is inconsistent. Okay? It's important, insubordinate and inconsistent. Verses nine through 12. Whether we bless our Lord and Father, and whether we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out the, from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Answer, no. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? No. Nor can salt water produce fresh water. Christians, we fall prey to the tongue. It's not just those who are outside the church, right? In our best moments, we we bless God. And in our worst, we curse men made in his image. And here's the crazy thing. It it can happen in the blink of an eye. It can happen in the blink of an eye. It, It doesn't take much to go from praising to cursing if the motivation arrives. The proper provocation comes, right? James is just drawing here for his illustrations on the, the inherent consistency of nature. And he's exhorting us to bring our our tongues, our new nature. Bring bring the tongues in line with our new nature. That's his point. Okay? Be consistent. Now, how do we bring all that about? How do we grow in the control of our tongue? How how do we use our tongue to bless and not curse? The answer is to walk by the Spirit. It is to walk by the Spirit. In other words, to be going in the same direction that the Spirit is going. Well, how do we do that? let me suggest some things for you as we finish our time here. Let me suggest some practical things. First, take in great quantities of Scripture so that your vocabulary changes and becomes God's. You'll actually begin to think and speak in biblical language. You'll begin to think and speak God's thoughts after him. Just take in huge quantities of it. How much? More. Whatever you got, more. We send people around the world, halfway around the world. For what purpose? To bring the word of God to them, right? In their own heart language. So that they can take in great quantities of the word of God. I mean, if they're followers of Christ, then we're going to see them in glory. So why do we spend all this time with the Bible? Why, why the literacy training? So they can read and consume the word of God. Because the spirit of God works through the word of God to change and transform his people. Secondly, is to pray regularly and specifically for the Spirit's help in mastering your tongue. If this is an area for you where you know that you are really not where you need to be, then you need to pray specifically for the Spirit to help you to get control of your tongue. Third, third, Refuse to participate in gossip, slander, boasting, flattery, lying, and other sins of the tongue. Refuse to participate. In other words, if it's happening, turn and walk away. Or if you're bold enough, rebuke those who are so engaged. Do not enter in. And when you fall into one of these... And we do. We need to quickly repent and seek the forgiveness of all who are involved. If it's one person privately, then it's a private repentance and and asking for forgiveness. If If you sin publicly, then it needs to be a public repentance. There have been a number of times through the years here where I've had to come and repent publicly before you for something I have said. Fourth, regularly thank God for all the good things he has provided to you. This dampens the fire of discontentment and a critical spirit. Develop an attitude of gratitude. How? By regularly thanking God, taking the time to thank God. Fifth, Look for evidence of God's grace in others and verbalize it to them. Look for evidence of God's grace in others and verbalize it to them without any caveats and no corrections. Okay, mom and dad, this one's for you. I mean, it's for all of us. This one's for you. Son, you did a really fine job, but... No, put a period after you did a really fine job. And then tell him what he did a fine job in, but do not include the The contrast. No caveats, no corrections. Look for someone, catch someone displaying the grace of God and tell them about it. And finally, practice Ephesians 4.29. Or as my mother used to say, if you don't have any good thing to say, then don't say anything at all. Funny how mothers know that sort of stuff, huh? Pray that God would change your heart toward that person. Begin to pray for that person in particular, that God would change your heart toward them so that you would have something good to say, so that you could find the evidence of grace, so that you could be thankful for them. I get it. In a body this size, you know, there's a certain amount of rubbing that goes on that's less than comfortable. We need to get over it. Well, as I said to you, I I chose this sermon this morning because I'm not concerned about anything in particular, just generally. Two and a half ounces of trouble. A small spark could set a big fire. The devil would like nothing better than to get in here and tear it up. And it lies with us. It lies with us. May God in his infinite mercy and grace by his spirit help all of us to grow in this very practical aspect of the new life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess the need for this sermon, and not just for this Sunday, but on a regular basis, because we confess that, what bubbles out of our mouths with all too much frequency is salt water. We confess, our Father, that we don't speak words of grace to one another as we ought. We confess that our critical spirit comes upon us very quickly, very easily. We confess, Father, that our orientation even towards the fellowship of believers is often what am I going to get out of it? How does it meet my needs? What is it I don't like? And in all of that, Father, we betray our former life. We we demonstrate that we desperately need Christ. Not just wants to save us but day in and day out to keep us saved to transform us I pray Lord for Foothill Bible Church and we would be a people whose tongues reflect a heart of holiness a people whose mouths encourage one another and speak words of grace A people who love one another and, and it shows in such a way that this community sees it and recognizes that we have been with Christ. Oh Lord, we're not where we want to be in these things. None of us are. Please forgive us. And by your spirit, just strengthen us, Lord. Reinvigorate us for the work.